And welcome to our November edition of the Cenotopia radio show and podcast. I'm Amanda and I run Cenotopia and I'm here with some of our regulars again. Um, and it's, I'm here with Jim Ross, co-producer of the show. Jim, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Good to be back. And back with Simon um, Bowie. Bowie. Is it Bowie Bowie? Bowie Evil works. Evil works. <laughs> All right, Simon. How are you? How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks. Good. Thanks. Um, been a... a, a stressful few weeks but yeah back 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 at it ready to watch some films yes and Steph we're back uh with you as well Steph it's been a while how have you been uh good thank you yeah it's, it's really good to be back happy to, to see everyone again and just looking forward to the holiday season where there shouldn't be too much going on Yes, and we'll uh, we'll we'll hopefully be talking about yeah next month's uh, maybe Christmas challenge I've just come up with, <laughs> um, but we're not going to focus on Christmas and the holidays yet. We're going to focus on three films that are currently out, um, and that is the Banshees of Inisherin, uh, directed by Martin McDonough. It's been out for a couple weeks. We're also going to review the Oil Machine. It's directed by a local filmmaker Emma Davy, and will be shown at Summer Hall uh, later this week. And we're also going to be reviewing Causeway, uh, a debut feature by Lila Noiga Bauer. Also, as we discussed on the last month, um, there's quite a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of things shaken up in the Edinburgh cinema landscape with the loss of the film house and uh, the CMI going into administration. So uh, I uh, spoke with Patty, Ali, and Bell, who are the organizers of the former CMI staff welfare fund. So we've been talking about that because it's really important to highlight the work that they're doing and for us to support it. Um, you can support it at savethefilmhouse.com. Uh, That's where you can find um, the fund. And so if you don't get to that interview, uh, just go there right now. And then we also spoke with uh, Jim Hickey. Jim Hickey, who was the director of the film house from 79 to 93. So we really want to talk a little bit about the history and what's at stake, um, given that we have uh, lost uh, that wonderful space at this moment. How is everyone feeling? Um, I know it's been a kind of a really chaotic month in terms of, yes, illness and 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 lots of things um, and the world, uh, but also particularly around this uh, cinema landscape and arts landscape in the UK and beyond? Um, pretty grim, to be honest. Um, the, you know, I think it, it, it's hard. So the Save the Film House campaign is kind of up and running and there's a Google group going down. And it's heartening to see so many people who are keen to, you know, fight for, you know, keeping some sort of cinema provision like that in Edinburgh. That's, that, that's good. It's heartening to see, right? Um, I think since then, you know, like there's a... Uh, cinema in Wolverhampton, the Lighthouse, which has kind of gone a similar way, just uh, even since we did the last show. Um, and, you know, when you see that, combined with that, I, I made a big thing on the, on the last show and on social media about this can happen um, anywhere in the country outside like London, but even then, I've even then said that like, the curtains on Mayfair is apparently going to get, like, because it's going to be sold off for flats or something, so like, even, even that qualifier, the outside London part is not 100% accurate, so I'm not going to lie, I'm feeling a bit grim about it. Um, I think it's I, I think it's good that so many people are 
you know, feel so passionate about trying to maintain it, and I think that's needed. But um, the situation is still pretty precarious, and I don't feel that great about it. Um, so, yeah, a slightly depressing outlook. But hopefully, hopefully we hopefully manage to get somewhere and you know keep the keep this in the the news and in people's minds. Um, I think the the grassroots response is great. Um, the institutional response has not been. I don't think, but. Yeah, it's really disheartening. There's an article in this most Sight and Sound about the the film house situation and the charity that owned it, which hopefully should bring it some you know recognition in the larger UK cultural sector discussions. But um, yeah, it's it's really, really disheartening. Um, for Aberdeen as well, like the Belmont yeah. Film House in Aberdeen is a cracking wee cinema. I've, I've been there more often than I've been to the Edinburgh Film House, so I've got more attachment to it. But that's that's a real loss for the city. Um, so I was, you know, on my side, glad to go to Glasgow Film Theatre over London Film Festival, where it was parallel showing things. And the 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 main screen, screen one, was just packed for all of the showings I went to. So that was quite heartening for the kind of Glasgow film scene. But it's it's you know everyone here is very very concerned about you know, like Jim said, it can happen anywhere. Yeah, it's. I think in in Scotland it, it it is horrible, and I think what's what's worse is it, it, it's always kind of kind of been coming the art sector, and thing kind of gets brushed over. There's just not enough investment, and there's not really enough concern about it. Um, what's sad, I suppose, is not not just that we're losing cinemas, but we've also lost a film festival for people that you know really do support independent film and really want to see new new filmmakers um, having their voice out there and having new new stories make the screen. You know, there's um, it's going to become more difficult um, for filmmakers in Scotland um, to get commissioned and things, and it's just going to. Be, I think that. Like Jin said, it's good that we're having a, good, a great grassroots response, but we need a bigger response that uh, we just need to get, um, especially people in, in government to address it more than they are. Um, I think that's really all that I can really say about it at the moment. But yeah, it's, it is disheartening. Well, yes, I completely agree. I think getting the word out as much as possible. Um, I was, I've been somewhat involved in the campaign, but also involved with um, some of the projections that were put out as mentioned uh, you'll be hearing from the organizers of the GoFundMe uh, welfare fund which is you know part of the campaign but something that you should you should support in any case if you can um, in any way but I think it's about getting the message out on how you feel about um, spaces like cultural spaces you know let's let's just say art spaces in general it's not just film spaces and how valuable and important they are and from my standpoint I'm doing my best to buy my coffees and glasses of wine and whatnot at every arts institution I can I can support right now Um, you know that's a huge portion of uh, a lot of times their income is the bars and cafes and stuff like that so um, whatever I can do to support with I have I will be putting into um, as many arts institutions as possible Um, I'd also I'd also encourage for I mean admittedly maybe the maybe the audience for this radio show and podcast kind of already knows these things but I would encourage for to go on to the save the will that save the film house website and just read some of the stuff there in particular I think one that's definitely worth looking at is the um the discussion about the the projection team at the film house and you know I think it kind of gets across what 
I, I, I've banged on a lot about kind of like we have lost more than in a cinema. And I think it, it's kind of a, a nice little micro example of that to read like where the expertise was, why it was different to the other cinemas in the city and even the country, you know, the ability to show things on, you know, 35mm and 70mm. And also, like, how big that team was. It wasn't big. It was small. But, like, where they'd come from. You know, I mean, some of them were former front-of-house staff who then learned these skills. And, you know, it's all this sort of thing that's been lost. Um, so I, I think it's worth going on reading that sort of thing. Because I think I did, my, my big thing with this is I think a lot of people outside the, the bubble can view it as, oh, well, you know, people didn't go and it was expensive. It's like, no, we have lost more than that. And I think showing people those examples of it um, really kind of gets that across. And I think it's also important for the whole the whole idea of this GoFundMe. I mean, what, what, we, what we are potentially losing is um not just jobs it's the skills with those jobs it's or more or well it's the skills with those jobs and or taking those skills and applying them to this industry you know i mean people can go elsewhere like you lose people from the industry you lose people from this this sector and as as i said on the previous show once you lose these things it's very hard to get them back it's very hard I'd agree. And I also think, um, you know, I, I think about like organizations like the university that have these, you know, master's programs or these, you know, these programs that bring the opportunity was really at places like the film house. Not yeah. only did the universities use the film house as sort of an extension to their, you know, that there's their space, they showed, you know, the film departments would, you know, show films throughout that, or, you know, the film guild was a large, was a large part of working with the university. So they didn't have to have their own cinema, which I think is kind of sort of sad in itself that the university of Edinburgh doesn't have its own cultural center or, or cinema. And, you know, like for, for the students, but where are those graduates looking to go, you know, in terms of new, uh, new potentials for jobs? This was really where um, young, like you said, people might've started off in front of house or started in a certain position and stayed on. And, you know, you have 25, 30 years of experience that now there's not, um, yeah. you know, they need to maybe potentially go somewhere else, uh, you know, and, and the, the, then a city like this loses that, um, that, uh, skill set those skilled workers and that's really it's really sad So the first film we're going to review is The Banshees of Inisherin um and Jim why don't you tell us about this film yeah, so um, this is directed by Martin McDonough, um, who I think most people would probably know from directing in Bruges. He's a former, uh, well, I say former playwright, I mean, he's still a playwright, but that, that's basically how he made his name. But then since then, he has uh, made a, a bunch of films, four feature films, this being the fourth. So he started off with In Bruges, which was a very big hit, and I think has become a bit of a cult. Yeah. Uh, mainstay uh seven psychopaths after that which which i liked i don't think a lot of people necessarily did i think i think steph mentioned earlier she quite liked it i think we must be one of the two of the dozen people worldwide who seem to actually genuinely quite enjoy it um three billboards which i thought was very good and i think i, I think the general consensus on it is that it, it, it's good but it has had a bit of a reassessment in recent uh years in terms of how it handles some of its characters and ideas 
but basically this one is uh, basically taking uh, McDonough back to Ireland. Uh, it reunites the lead pair from that first feature in Bruges uh, with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. And it is set on a fictional island um, just off the coast of Ireland called Inishern, uh during the Irish Civil War. And it basically focuses on the relationship between Brendan Gleeson's Colm Doherty, um, who is a sort of a local folk musician, and his friend and pub-going pal, Podrick. Um, for all of the Irish Gaelic speakers out there, I will not attempt to pronounce Podrick's surname. Um, and basically, the film opens with Podrick going to call on Colm, as he does at 2pm every day to go to the pub, and Colm doesn't answer his door. Uh, and just ignores him. You can see him sitting inside. And uh, Podrick's sister, uh, Siobhan, jokes, maybe he just doesn't like you anymore, and that turns out to be true. Um, he's decided that Podrick is a dull man uh, who is basically a drain on his time, and he wants to use the time he has left to write music and try and do things that will mean he is remembered, because nobody will remember his uh, aimless chats with a limited man, as he puts it. Um, now, basically, this then kind of develops and escalates from there. Um, we can decide how much we want to talk to as we go along, but basically it's a very um, contemplative building film. It has that sort of same sort of black comedic feel to it that I think... Mainly in Bruges and Seven Psychopaths, not the one elements of it in uh, um, Three Billboards, but it feels more akin to um, in Bruges in that sense than his previous films. Um, I think it's got two very good central performances, but I mean, you got to think, I mean, you got to find out what everybody thought of it. And so I loved it. I I, I really really enjoyed it. Um, I think it's got a fascinating kind of texture in that. It's a very funny film. It, it's really laugh out loud funny at points, but there is this deep kind of melancholy that that comes through in both the performances, like you say, and and the uh, the limitations of life on this island and in in the Ireland of the time. Um, so it, it's really got these different layers, these different textures that I think really work incredibly well. Um, it feels like a uh, play the script feels like a a a play a chamber piece um with quite a small cast really i mean they're all on this island together there's not many outlets for them to get out into the world but it, it feels like a play um and i was unsurprised to learn that it is a, a play that mike mcdonough wrote early in his career and abandoned and has come back to as a film um however saying that there is also these kind of sweeping vistas of uh, you know a, a mist covered island uh, off the coast of Ireland that that just looked terrific and that really lend it this kind of rural gothicy quality um really interesting film and I I I just loved it like one of my favorite films of the year yeah I I really really enjoyed the film as well I um I think that. I, I agree with Simon. I think that I love the kind of theatre-like quality to it. I didn't realise until today um, that it, it is based off a play that um, was in the works and is now being sort of translated on the screen. 
um i think that it, i think it works really well in a sense and i think that one i think that the the, the vistas and the imagery and and things that really help reflect these characters life and this kind of deep isolation um and i think that's a lot of where the comedy comes from it is dark humor um but it but it is really funny it is it's, i think it's a really well ba balanced narrative and i think that that the benefit of kind of using um obviously what was written in the format of theater has really helped elevate kind of where there is kind of a lot of absurdism kind of that become that kind of weaves through um throughout the character of Colm especially um yeah i it, it's definitely i think um, i think that this one's going to be quite an interesting um piece for people that are quite uh, fami familiar um with seven psychopaths or in bruges or um three billboards because i i think that um i agree with jim that it goes probably uh, more far back to his earlier work but um i think it, it does stand out in many ways as well i think probably because it has come from theater um but yeah it's just it's it's so bizarre and i think that you know i do think the, the central performances are, are excellent um but i also think um uh, barry keoghan's performance in, in that film was was one of the best I, I i you know i think ever since that i've you've seen him in earlier works when we go back to um um the killing of sacred deer i forget the other one that i seen recently i think i was talking about jim quite a while ago um but he um yeah he's fantastic and i think that i i think that the oddball characters as well really elevate the texture of this stuff. You have the kind of village idiot, the gossipy, um, the gossipy neighbors that can't mind their own business, and then you've got this kind of really bizarre separation between two, what is kind of inferred to be quite long-term friends. But um, it's really intriguing. It's definitely one um, that I think that we. It's, it's something that if you watch, you might have a completely different perspective each time that you see it. I think it's got so many layers. But um, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend everyone catch it as soon as they can, really. Yeah, I think Barry Coogan gives a, a great performance as well. Um, but there's also a, a terrific performance, I think, from Kerry Condon, who's um, mm. Podrick's sister. And she's kind of the straight woman of the piece. You know, she's she's sensible. She's level headed. She is, I think at one point she just says she's bored of being on this island with these dull men surrounding her. Um, and, and she gives a really important grounding performance to the kind of absurdity going on around her. That's um, really good. Uh, really, really strong performance. I, I couldn't remember seeing her in anything else. Um, yeah, I think I think it, it, I just want to back it that Simon up on... Um... Kerry Condon's performance because I'd even go so far as to say that her role is kind of critical into this in this working really right yes. um, because I think one of the things that's quite interesting about the dynamic between the characters is the way that you kind of go back and forth with who you feel sympathy for Kerry Condon's performance as Siobhan is something where this it, it kind of pivots around it a little bit she's the um, as Simon said, the, the the straight person of the piece, really, in the sense that you know she's not engaging in absurdity. She has her own conflict in this story, this own her own kind of emotional thing to to deal with. Um, 
but it's it, it's slightly more grounded and it does put a slightly different spin on this. I it, it's not any coincidence that it's set during the the Irish Civil War. I mean, I think some people would probably read it as a, a, a kind of a this conflict is kind of a metaphor for that. I, I just find a very a very good film to just sit and observe those performances. Like I think Brendan Gleeson is absolutely superb. I think Colin Farrell. So I spoke after Yang on the show, right? He's had a couple of films out this year where I think he's done really, really great work. After Yang is one of them. I think he's excellent here as well. I mean, like just the, it's very hard not to kind of like feel sympathy, get emotional when just like you know he has a conversation and he's knocked back by Colin. He just looks absolutely devastated. You know, he really, really sells this role. And there's a, and it goes across the whole cast. I mean, even Steph talking about uh, Barry Keoghan, like there's one there's one part there where he just kind of the line delivery is just incredible. He he, he says sort of like there goes that dream, right? I'm not going to give the context as to what he's talking about. He says it just says there goes that dream and it's absolutely crushing. It is absolutely crushing. I find it quite a hard film to talk about because what you, I, I feel like you come away from this film with more of a feeling than you do kind of like an idea about you know something or it, 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 you come away with this it generates this sort of feeling and empathy which i think is something that will sit with you for a while rather than necessarily an idea about something um and i think that's actually quite impressive in a way i pretty much i think um the one who least i liked this film the least as everybody uh, here um not that i disliked the film I mean, I am a huge fan of sweeping Irish uh, like island sort of views and was and the donkeys and the, you know, animals and the dogs and and everything. And Colin Farrell, I agree, is incredibly doing really well right now. And in terms of the films that he's doing, and this was a great performance by all of the people you mentioned. Um, but I feel like the reason why you come around with this emotion is partly because it's beautiful. I don't think it's that complex of a story. It didn't feel that complex to me. Uh, and I also, I just kind of got a, annoyed with the village idiot. You mentioned that Steph is like sort of like caricatures. And I think sometimes they kind of bothered me uh, the way that Dominic was sort of portrayed in, one, in, in certain bits, as well as uh, even Colin. Um, and, and I don't, that maybe that just put, put me off a bit and... Um, I mean, I can see the acting being really good and emotive, but certain parts uh, sort of it turned me off in terms of being like this character of a village life of, you know, in the 20s in Ireland. And it felt like, even though I know it's an Irish person making this film, it felt slightly like a caricature of 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 life, rural life, similarly to maybe the way that Limbo sort of kind of had that sort of impression of where it was you know in Scotland as well and 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 I and I just didn't it the, those times I would they they made me unsettled and perhaps maybe the same way that as we talked about you know three billboards was quite popular in the you know amongst a couple of but I did not like that film too because of these certain I don't characters of people in America that bothered me I do actually agree with that in a sense, and like, the way of the characters and the, the the kind of stereotypical things that we see all the time, especially when we're looking at kind of rural um, places and and island life, especially. Um, I think to me, in a sense, it it, it seemed more deliberately cartoonish because you you had this this obviously um, 
um, Barry playing this um, um, kind of delinquent, essentially, and this kind of almost psychopathic um, policeman roaming about the island with um, this strange, ominous old woman that seemed to be some sort of mythical um, person casting death upon everyone. I, I, I think that to me that there's a lot of it that wasn't necessarily meant to be centered in realism. I think that it's interesting um, with Siobhan's character, I think that she was kind of the, the grounding element of the whole film. She was sort of the only real person there. Um, she sort of understood the, the limitations and uh, forsicality of this, this region and what was going on and where everyone kind of becomes stuck essentially. Um, but I do think, yeah, I do think there, there was extremities in the way that like I suppose like Limbo in the sense that there was a cartoonish kind of feel to these people and there wasn't a completeness um I think that that was kind of I think that was kind of I don't know if that was meant to be deliberate but I do understand um where Amanda's coming from for for that because I think that it was a lot of it was quite absurd and become even more absurd as the kind of film develops I, I think that um essentially what where everyone was kind of distinctly simplistically oddball became quite extremely um like a caricature and kind of like a representation of a person rather than actually trying to express real kind of indigenous I... island people in, I'm, in I'm gonna i'm gonna disagree with the period actually um and the the the, the, the reason i say this is so i i love in bruges right it, it, i i think it's an excellent film it's one that i will happily happily rewatch. um it kind of reminds me the most of the, you know, because you've got the same lead pair as well. But what I will say about this film in comparison to, I would say, any of his three previous features, actually, uh, Martin McDonough, is it does feel a bit more emotionally mature to me. Um, and I, I'm not sure that I agree with the the caricature element. To a, to a certain extent, there needs to be a little bit of caricature here because of the way that these characters are interacting and what they're maybe meant to to represent. But I'm, I'm going to take Barry Keoghan's character as an example, actually. And yes, he, he is portrayed as the village idiot. He's basically explicitly designated so by people in the script. But I think the script itself actually gives him a bit more to do with that. He certainly, he offers some insight to um, Colin Farrell's character about what it is that Cole maybe wants from him, right? You know, so like, and this comes as a shock to Podrick, who is apparently meant to be significantly more intelligent than him. So like he has that, like he has this level of, insight and kind of observational skill that is put there in the script and it's put there and there, there is something to it there's also an interaction he has with um siobhan and then the way that that then climax is that shows that he does have a you know he does have uh wants and desires and how he may react when they are not able to be fulfilled in the location he's in. So I think so to be yeah, fair, but, I actually th I actually think he's portrayed as a more complex but, but character. That's not, I don't think credit for I don't think that point is exactly that he wasn't so I, I agree that the storyline is that he's just he's smarter or he's coming across. I think it's the way that the the way that he's portrayed within sort of even the like the the mannerisms and whatnot that I find is 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 slightly a caricature of someone who might 
be considered a village idiot, you know, and and I think that was to but me without, it was like, but without it was those like slightly offense, offense of what maybe would be considered a mental health situation or something. It was like it's it's for the story, but it's not also. I I take your point, but without without some nod to it with the character saying he is in some mannerisms that are maybe slightly offbeat. How do you set up that contrast though? Well, you then don't. He's just another character. You, you don't. You don't portray someone like that, and 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 then also call them that. I I, I I I. It goes back to this thing about being funny and also tone. And I think this director gets away with sometimes re- tones that are slightly offensive. And for me, that was that. That's how I took it. And you know, it, it's my own. You know, it's my my opinion on that. But I mean, I think other than. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I, I think that like the story is allowed to go through sometimes in a certain way because it's funny or there's good performances. None of those performances I, I say anything against. It's just the way in which people are portrayed. Yeah, I, I, I take that point. I think it's valid. Um, I, I certainly can see that with with free billboards, for example. Um, for me in this film, I, I thought the broadness of the characters spoke to the kind of mythologizing tone that it's kind of going for. Like it, it's named after banshees. It, it's kind of setting itself up as this kind of Irish folk tale, um, and and plugging into that tradition of kind of Irish mythology. Uh, so I thought the kind of broadness of the archetypes that uh, Martin McDonough's script was bringing was kind of appropriate for that. But but I absolutely take your point that you know these these can be seen as caricatures. Um, which which can be offensive. I think there is quite a bit of development um for um back, like Barry Keegan's character. Um but I do take the point of the archetype. I do think um and 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 the representational aspect that that, that is there. Um I think it, I think it's something that um I think that if not for kind of the way it was kind of developed and such um it it would it would be quite a tone imbalance um for me for me personally i didn't necessarily find it offensive but i do think that th- there are i suppose some limitations there when you know i think with the i think that what kind of saved it for me is, is kind of it is theatrical it is quite play like everything is a little bit otherworldly and very meant to be extremely hyperbolic and not exist not um not everything about the characters is necessarily centered within reality. I'm not saying that you know there's not very real qualities about the characters. I think that there wouldn't be any drive to the story if that was the case. But yeah, I do I do understand the kind of the the conflicts there, especially. I think that it does there is a certain kind of um consistency in, in film when it's kind of talking about rural and island life to kind of get maybe to um, zoned in on, on the stereotypes on, on first hand there could be I suppose there could be a more exploration there so I, I kind of I kind of see all points in, in that in that way I, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back a little bit again right in the sense that the, the, and I, I, I I'll, pre- I'll preface this with I, I understand kind of the, the the misgivings about potential stereotyping particularly around um Barry Keoghan's character and just kind of like he, him being set up as a villager. I, I, I get that, right? The thing is, though, right, we're, we're talking about these people, like some of these characters, maybe the exception of Kerry Cond and Siobhan being caricatures, right? 
and that's fine. And I think that's I think that's true to a certain extent. I think it's more true for Barry Keoghan's character than the others, which is why I would understand where these these come from. But I had to the way the the way that these characters interact, even if they are slight caricatures, is more complex than the characters themselves, right? And I think Barry Keoghan's character is critical to these dynamics because you've got Colm saying, "Oh well, you know, I'm not going to be remembered for my." Limited my aimless chats of a limited man. He's referring to Podrick. Now, in the in the midst of all this happening, Podrick basically then ends up spending a lot of time with Barry Keoghan's Dominic, who's meant to be, even in relation to him, a more limited man, so to speak. But he gets something out of that relationship. It allows him to find companionship, insight, understanding of the world and the other people around him. So it sets up this contrast between like what people how these interactions then bring value to someone's life how you give them but then also in the way that kind of that Patrick will mistreat Dominic occasionally uh, by calling him the village idiot by not giving him his due credit it also sets up the reverse of that dynamic where Colm is now kind of putting upon Podrick frankly, his own dissatisfaction with life. It's not Podrick's fault. It's, it's, it, it lies within himself. So it's more a case of, I, I, I do take the point about maybe caricatures of rural life, but it's, it's trying to take these caricatures and have them interact in a way that speaks to a slightly more universal feeling. And I think unless you set that, unless you set that character up, uh, this is Barry Keoghan's character I'm talking about unless you set that character up as being in some way seen to be, and I emphasize seen to be, seen to be inferior to Patrick in some way, it's very hard to set that contrast up and then it becomes very much just about two two men two men fighting right, and it is about like it, that's, that's the hook, but in terms of the way it then sets up and contrasts that with other people across the island with the relationships, it can't do that unless you have another character to do it. And that's 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 what that that's why that character is there. Pretty sure if we were to sit down and restructure the film for that, we could maybe look at it a different way. But I understand why that character is done the way it is. Oh, I understand why. I just don't like the way that it was, and perhaps. Um... Um, yeah, I'm finding this a consistent thing with with his work that I'm I'm responding to, and I find that mm-hmm. slight around tone. And um, you know, I would I'm now probably more interested to go see you know some of the other films again to see if this is just something that I'm noticing. But the thing, with- but the thing is, I do think you have a point there. Like, I think that's something that I would also like. You know, I mean, I've liked all of his films, but I think that is something that is. It is in there with them. I just, I think with, you know, I think about some of them even more like, to my mind, more problematic elements of, you know, say in Bruges, Seven Psychopaths and even um, Three Billboards. I, I, I personally think this one is a lot easier to justify. I think that this this one to me, it feels like there is that there is a purpose and it is in service of the film. Some of the, some of the things I can think of in those other films, I don't know. I'm not so sure. Um, you know, I mean, like, I think the elephant in the room here when we're talking about Three Bulls is probably Sam Rockwell's character, and you know, I, I I think I probably would have looked for that to be handled differently. Um, I don't think it's the nail in the film's coffin that I think a lot of other people find it uh, for me, but you know, I would do it differently. And I can think I can point to things in the other two films where I don't really understand why why it needed to be that way. And I think, as you say, Amanda, it's been 
gotten away with because there's humor attached to it or there's a good performance attached to it. Here though, I, I here though I, I do feel like there is a thematic and narrative justification for it. I was really sad about the donkey. Um I couldn't I couldn't deal yeah, with that. I mean that to me should should have happened in the film. Like I mean it had to happen, but no, it was too much. Yeah. I got quite attached to that donkey quite early on and it was just really setting myself up to cry. Yeah, I almost wanted to get a donkey like halfway through the film and then <laughs> um anyway. Well Veggies of Inisherin is out now. It's um it's yeah, it's available uh, in most a lot of cinemas. So please go see it and let us know what you think. next film we're going to review is The Oil Machine, um, directed by Emma Davey. And Steph, do you want to give us uh, your what, 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 what this film's all about? Thanks, Amanda. Yeah, um, this documentary um, premiered at um, Sheffield's Dockfest back in June. Um, I'm not actually sure if it, where it's available, when it's going to be available to stream in the UK. I don't think that's been announced yet. Um, it is coming to the Cameo Cinema um, for a screening in December, if anyone, um, any Edinburgh people are interested uh, in seeing it. And I think as Amanda mentioned, it's also coming to Summer Hall this month as well. Um, so there's there's a few showings um, um, floating about quite soon. Um, so, yeah, um, I think uh, <laughs> a lot is given away in the title of the film. It is very oil centric, but with a great purpose. Um, the film explores the cultural, economic and historical drives and demands for oil production in the UK and how we're becoming more entangled as a society in the, the fossil fuel problem. And it poses questions like, are we moving towards a new future in the coming years and moving away from pumping out these resources for profit uh, when we can see now more than ever what the damage, the damage that it's doing? It really dives deep into what is essentially a dependence on oil catalyzed by an overwhelming continual greed. The the documentary um, has many kind of experts from different industries and positions. You have activists, economists, academics, and those associated with or those who've been part of the oil and gas industries who discuss the conflicts that are becoming kind of a barrier to um, to change in any resolution to climate change uh, in current society. And we're currently in COP27 at the moment. So, you know, it, res- it, it does resonate um, quite a lot just now. Um, but yeah, um, for me, it was, yeah, it was the documentary was, I found it really um, effective, but I'll, I'll let someone else um, g- give, their, give their thoughts on it um, since I've just rambled on a bit there. Yeah, I think it's a really striking, really interesting documentary. It, it kind of goes through the past, present and future of, of Britain's dependency on oil. So we've got the past with like the history of the discovery of oil in the North Sea during the kind of 70s and 80s, uh, during Margaret Thatcher's premiership, um, and how that could have been handled differently. We look at the present with kind of Scotland's infrastructure for getting this oil out of the sea onto the rigs and through this this massive pipeline that apparently goes from Aberdeen down to uh, just north of Edinburgh uh, where it's uh, refined into 
you know plastics and 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 whatnot um and then there's some talk about the future and and obviously this gets into discussions of climate change and how oil and fossil fuel dependency uh exacerbates climate change problems um there's some discussion of uh the plans around net zero and carbon capture and how relying on expanding oil and gas extraction based on the idea that we'll achieve net zero just isn't happening that's not feasible that's not going ahead net zero is explicitly framed as a greenwashing front for fossil fuels business as usual and the fossil fuel industry carrying on the way it has and it, it's it's obviously an open question what what will happen with oil in the future what will happen with scotland politically and what will happen with scotland's uh kind of ownership of this oil with ownership in inverted commas um so i i think it's a really effective really effective documentary there's, there's some really striking imagery some incredible drone shots i i liked that it kind of the cinematography kind of represented oil rigs and oil refineries as these sci-fi dystopian you know objects these territories and so you get a pan over the rig that looks like panning over the nostromo in alien or 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 through los angeles in blade runner it, it's kind of this this cheeky uh framing of of these massive industrial things as as dystopian as as otherworldly as science fiction um which i i really thought was very effective in getting the point across yeah i i would largely agree with both of you in terms of uh the the informative aspect of this film really educates in a way that's not heavy like it's not heavy-handed in terms of saying this is you know this mm. it really sort of explains something that i didn't now living in scotland i had no idea sort of the infrastructure of the north sea how how it's you know so connected to where we live um you know and i've definitely seen grange mouth didn't know you know these didn't Grangemouth know these spaces these spaces as what how it's part of this larger infrastructure and actually went up to the northeast coast to just you know to for for a visit a, a few months ago and saw this kind of happening you know like uh, you know right off right off the coast so i i think it's super important and i think like you know um i've i've spent a lot of time watching environmental documentaries over the years and so i have strong opinions on perhaps the way things are communicated and sometimes, again, they can be done in certain ways that are is really just its purpose seems to tell you something that is really urgent. And what has come across is that this is incredibly urgent and perhaps slightly just not slightly seriously dystopian, but mm. between what we what we've been told otherwise. So and, you know, how hard it would be to, you know, switch this stuff up, given that the governments are so involved. So it's it's depressing. Um, but I do think it, it got me thinking more about how much more um, urgent this is. So I wouldn't, I would recommend everyone to watch a film like this. Um, you know, in terms of the imagery and the, you know, I like, you know, you know, it, it's not, it didn't, didn't blow me away in terms of the most gorgeous film I've ever seen, or, you know, mm. that it was doing anything like, miraculously in terms of an art documentary film or whatnot but I don't need that all the time and I, I often say that like I don't always have to have you know something be an experimental experimental art film that's 
whatever, I think some, this, this fits, it's fit to purpose, you know, for what, what it's supposed to be. Yeah, I think it's a really, a really important documentary just now, and it is good that it is so informative. We have these, you know, these conferences and protests happening all around the world, um, in the UK and Scotland at the moment, and we've got this, quite rightly so, this rise of green activism, and there is a great urgency, and I think that this documentary does well to capture that authentically, and it, it kind of confirms in many areas, this is sort of where it stops. On one hand, we have academics, we have activists, even economists, and especially the younger generation raising this awareness daily, but the kind of key figures, you know, in the position to make real change, you know, still have their hands in their pockets. And I think this documentary does really well to explore the kind of very almost man-made obstacles and the power imbalance that runs through this issue. You know, we have big businesses pledging transitions and plans for the next 10, 20 plus years regarding fossil fuels and carbon emissions, but unable or unwilling to provide any tangible results. It's like it's almost another element of greenwashing and its sole purpose is to kind of further this delay with the hope that even more will turn a blind eye in, in years to come. And I think, like Simon said, it does well to relate all this back to the historic records with the North Sea, because I think, you know, for many people, we've become quite trapped in, by what, what we think is a success of what um, of these industries and what used to be. We've got these replays in the documentary of these old videos where it refers to um, the oil as this liquid gold. And it, um, it does encapsulate many views of what we hold today, this treasure chest of gold at the bottom of the sea with kind of ethical considerations adrift. Because looking at the, the duality of these products and where this usability is no longer sustainable is where the value kind of comes into question. And as kind of the film points out, we're living in a society of what is essentially contradictions. We have kind of governments speaking out about the harm of climate change and the need for net zero commitment. So kind of funneling further investment into this industry. Um, I would say that I do agree that the, the film, stylistically, the film works very well. And I think the imagery is effective. Um, for me, I don't think we needed kind of small children showing objects and saying that what is and what is not oil. I don't mm. think perhaps the emotional aspect that it was aiming for, because these sequences to me came up as very artificial. I think, you know, we have already have quite a lot of significant, like a lot of young people in this documentary talking about their fears for the future and sharing their concerns. P people talking about, you know, not wanting to have children in the world. Maybe, maybe they previously, previously did want to, but you know, it's, that's more of, effective and authentic in my opinion I don't think having kind of little kids read lines about oil I, I found that quite distracting but that would be my only kind of criticism with it to be honest yeah I, I agree Steph I think it's more effective when it's got climate activists talking about their kind of eco-anxiety their, their constant worry about whether or not they're going to have a future about whether we're going to have a future I think that that is the more effective bit because it, it seems more personal and less artificial like you say um I, I do appreciate that it covered the history kind of briefly I, I think there's more it could have gone into on kind of how Thatcher sold the the oil to these big companies uh on Tony Benn's alternative suggestions for kind of collective oil funds for Scotland and the UK but it felt like it didn't need all that history. It, it wanted to focus, I think, on on where we are and where we're going. So there's a kind of um, economy of, of of narrative there that really worked for me. Um, and, and like you say, Steph, tying it all into economic systems, to how oil is tangled into systems of investment banking, debt, equity, and how those reach out 
to actual people through pensions and mortgages is really effective because again that gets into that personal touch of how how oil is is literally a foundation of our economy and and how that plugs into our lives and and human lives um so i, I yeah like i say i think it's very effective i think it's very affecting i think it's somewhat preaching to the converted i, I can't imagine i think it's mostly the converted who will see the film but these are still important discussions to have particularly for scotland's future as it stands and for humanity's future like more broadly yeah i mean i I do think there is an outreach i mean i know someone who's working on terms of education and outreach uh on this film and perhaps and i i do agree with you steph on the you know this is oil this is an oil and 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 that again goes back to the fact that i wouldn't say this is a film that I mean, it feels along the lines of other environmental films I've seen over the years, which is which is a genre that I I, I appreciate a great deal. Um, so I I agree that it, maybe we didn't need it, but perhaps giving it back to younger people to have a, a voice in the film is is a, is one aspect that's important uh, for the film and is also important for the discussion, as you were saying, because um, that that's the the generation that that needs to embrace this film as well, and um, you know, and 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 help as. So I I do think it's probably. Um, you know, maybe perhaps geared and designed to, um, you know, to reach certain audiences. I mean, it, maybe, and maybe that's one of the reasons why that that's uh, that's been chosen. Um, but yeah, I think I think a lot of people need to see this. I do think that it's, um, you know, it was funded by the BBC and Creative Scotland. I do believe it'll probably be on the B. Did you say it's on the BBC? It, it will be on the BBC coming up. But I, I know it, um, it's. I think maybe going through a, it is at IDFA right now in Amsterdam yeah. but uh, you know eventually yeah, will. I don't, yeah. yeah I don't know if it's um I, I don't know if it's got an, a, a set release um I, I would imagine it would be coming to the BBC quite soon I wouldn't I wouldn't think that there would be so much delay there um I know that it is coming to the cameo in December yeah. so maybe at year end we'll see more uh, more widely available and um, by then I think it was on at the GFT this past week as well yeah, and it is it is on this week, and I was just checking it up. It's on the 18th and 19th of mm. November in Summer Hall. Um, but I, I mean, again, I think it's the ideas is building in a film that will reach people and inform people of of a large audience that can you know that can understand or maybe need to hear those things like what you have in your hands or oil <laughs> you know i mean these are kinds of maybe sort of perhaps useful in communicating an important message uh versus like i said maybe being a film that would win yeah. berlin alley yeah. awards but really not sort of connect with right, a larger right. audience I didn't really have I didn't really have a problem with the the kind of mentioning you know what items were you know made from oil like that was it wasn't really that I think the fact that it was you know it was quite clearly extremely sequenced and that it just yeah. it came off artificially in the sense that you know you've had a few kids read some lines and stuff but you know and and, and children obviously you know this is their future they will be um affected as will we all <laughs> um as we all are going to be but um you know i think that there, there probably could have been i i, I think a, a better stylistic choice to if, if, to address kind of 
yeah. what kind of objects are made of oil but the, again that it is a small criticism you know it didn't it didn't I think that my initial reaction when that was the first sequence opened up was I had kind of flashbacks to watching educational videos in, in primary school <laughs> yeah I was like please please no but it, no it wasn't anything like that well I think I made a similar argument with and which is not a documentary, but the come on, come on sort of, you know, like going back to like, there's something artificial about constantly going back to some gimmick idea around something. And that was very clear that this was like a framework and maybe that framework was a little, you know, artificial. And I, I, I don't disagree with you on that. Yeah, it, it's got it's worth mentioning it's got a very specific focus as well like it is it is thinking globally but acting locally as the yeah. saying goes it's talking about there's a specific focus on scottish towns and cities and how they will be impacted by rising sea levels caused by climate change like fort william like edinburgh and um, while also appreciating there's some discussion on countries like bangladesh which are suffering the worst impacts already despite contributing comparatively little to global carbon usage. Um, so that, that 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 focus on Scotland and uh, Scotland's future, Scotland's, you know, North Sea, Scotland's infrastructure is not just us putting it on the film. It is a core part of the film itself. So look out for Oil Machine um, either at Summer Hall or Cameo coming up um, or um, very likely on the BBC in the future. And I think we all think it's a very important film to watch. Uh, so please do. So uh, the final film we're going to review is uh, Causeway and Simon, tell us about this film. Yep. So Causeway is an Apple TV Plus release. Uh, it's already out on Apple Plus, oh, Apple TV Plus. Um, the film follows Lindsay, played by Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, Lindsay was deployed in Afghanistan and experienced a traumatic brain injury during her time over there, uh, which forces her to return back to the U.S., back to uh, recuperate for a little bit and then move in with her mother um, and return to daily life. She she kind of struggles with this brain injury, with PTSD resulting from that uh, and gets a job cleaning pools. Uh, she meets and befriends a mechanic uh, played by Brian Tyree Henry. Uh, his character's name is James and they become friends. They sort of parallel each other in that they have both suffered trauma involving cars they're both kind of recovering from that they're, they're kind of broken by their experience and the film follows them as they grow in this friendship get closer and attempt to recover from their trauma together Lindsay is also trying to redeploy uh back to afghanistan and, and trying to get the all clear from her doctor to do so um so yeah, it's 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 a it's quite a slight film. It's quite a, a small story, but I found that it really drew me in and had a kind of disproportionate impact for the kind of smallness of the story and the subtlety of the performances. Um, I'll be interested to hear what 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 other people thought. I really, I did that. Really like this film. I think for me, 
um, my initial thoughts were kind of going into this were kind of, oh, here we go, another post-war PTSD tale. But it's not, it's not that at all. It's a film mostly about recover, recovery and what that really means. Mm. And I think what is really effective is it is a film full of very, very loud themes and what is mostly quiet and reflective character studies. Yeah. We spend the film seeing Lindsay and James from, from the outside, which I think is quite a novel perspective. There is a lot that is still hidden and we kind of have to interpret what their struggles, language and behaviors kind of tell us about tell us about themselves and what their histories because there is a there is an air of mystery to the stories all the way through but, and and to me I think that that the performances in the film are fantastic you know we've seen from Lawrence in the past that she handles complexity with quite a lot of delicacy and respect and here again there is a sense of kind of underperformance that makes her character more, more real more human and I think um with um Brian um um, Tyree Henry, he, he's really hypnotic in this role. He's not someone that I'm extremely familiar with, but um, definitely an actor I, I need to see more of because I think he was fantastic in this role. And I think that it was actually more the, the duel between them that really balanced this film and are kind of a perfect vehicle to kind of handle these characters' sores and stories. Um, it's, it's a recommendation for me. I think that it, it was a, a really new way to explore um, especially um, trauma and mental illness in film. And I think that a lot of times with, with things like PTSD, we kind of veer off into the sensationalist um, um, shock tactics. And, you know, I don't think that, I think that this film shows we don't really need to do, do that. I think there's more effective ways to, sh to show these struggles and, and, and these very kind of real issues. And um, especially, I think that, um, with war with with war films this can be more true it's very much um it's very much almost a a hyperbolic tale of 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 fragile people that can't they can't really cope with the world and and this is not this is showing people that are doing their best to um to kind of rejoin life and i think that that's a really important angle to explore yeah um i would agree with both of i would agree with both of uh, the assessments that Simon and Steph have put in there. So I didn't know a lot about this film uh, going into it, to be perfectly honest. And it kind of wrong-fitted me a little bit. And, you know, you look at it and it is a, you know, it is an American production. It's got a big name attached to it in Jennifer Lawrence, who has, um, who you could argue has kind of addressed some of these types of roles before since she became good. I mean, like, you know, you could point to the kind of a silver linings playbook type thing and kind of like, you know, and you can start to see some parallels and maybe form preconceptions. And I think the very limited preconceptions I had about this film, it, it upended them pretty effectively. Um, I think as Steph said, there's, there is a tendency, particularly I think in, um, big star American cinema, let's say, to kind of go a little bit overboard with the emotions here, particularly when you're talking about um, the effects of trauma and, you know, um, mental health issues. And I think what I what I liked about this film is it, it, it understands that your reaction to these things isn't always, you know, uncontrolled and wildly emotional. Sometimes it is just, you're tired. And you sit in a room and just stay in the space for a bit. And I, I think the film, it, it deals with that really well, whilst also 
putting up some very nice, you know, some really good character interactions and the ways that kind of like, you know, you can kind of break through that and start to, to interact with people. I want to give a, a, a shout to the music. I think the music's very effective in that regard. And I think something they actually reminded me a little bit of in terms of tone is actually, um, it actually reminded me a little bit of um, Leave No Trace, which is another one of these films which kind of deals with, you know, mm. um, the effect of, the, you know, the effect of conflict on veterans and how they deal with it after. And it's interesting, there is a little bit of a circular loop here, because of course that was directed by Deborah Granick, who directed Winter's Bone, which is what Jennifer Lawrence made her name with. Um, but the, the, there was a little bit of it there, you know, and they're very different films, don't get me wrong, but in terms of tone and kind of the, the mood it sets, for trying to address these issues. It reminded me a little bit of that. And I found it very refreshing in that regard. It's a very contemplative film. Um, and my, my only complaint with it is I probably could have done a little bit more Brian Tidy Henry in this. I think he is, I, I, th I think he's superb. Yeah, um, I was going to say, I, I, I would just gush about Brian Tyree Henry, mm. full stop. But in this film, he's, he's terrific. I, I don't think he's had a film role that's really uh broken him out um you know he's had film roles before but I, I mainly think of his role in atlanta in donald glover's tv series in which he's just amazing uh and and i think he can bring such depth to a character and and say so much in silences and in very subtle gestures that that really works for the quietness of this film um I think Jennifer Lawrence is good as well. She, it, it's quite a quiet. I, I do think he's the standout, though. Yeah. I, I think yeah. he really is. Yeah, I was actually... and I, I, I haven't, I haven't seen Atlanta. Right, it's something I've been wanting to see for a while. But just in terms of like, just to back up something's point, I haven't seen Atlanta. But something that actually really struck, stuck with me with Brian Tyree is he's got a very small part in If Beale Street Could Talk, right, which is a film that we Ooh. reviewed on the show a long time ago, mm -hmm. and. He he's not on screen for the very lot, but he he really is superb in that. Like he's really excellent, and he, you know he's popped up in a couple of other things. So you know, on a more flippant note, I think he was in Bullet Train recently, right? And I actually rather liked him in that. I think that film was all right, but you know, like completely different type of film to any of the ones that we've mentioned so far. But he is super. He is superb. I haven't seen Atlanta, but I I do want to see more from him, and I think this is. This is a good showcase for him, but I, it, my only complaint about the films, I would have liked to have seen more of him because I think also the the on screen kind of chemistry he's got with Jennifer Lawrence is actually pretty good. I think. Yeah, yeah I I will second that because I actually thought what did detract for me is sometimes Jennifer Lawrence's performance. I don't think so. there were times when, and I think I go back to what Steph was originally saying around uh, the quietness of the film, and often worked really well when you were like sort of in the silence of trauma that, you know, these things have, these things take time uh, to heal and, you know, you sort of struggle through that process, uh, you know, of PTSD and sort of that, that works really well, but there were times where there was like an emotional sort of conflict. And I'm thinking this like snow cone uh, moment or something that it almost felt overplayed because the rest of the film was so well-timed and so well, I, I, every like everything worked really well until these kind of moments where they were like, oh, put the big actors like dramatic moment in and it didn't work as well for me. Um, I also really loved all the pools, by the way. I'm a big fan of pools in cinema and um, there was a nice pool montage and a really lovely like sort of dramatic scene in a pool that was very tense and sort of also like, yeah, sort of, 
like sexually like tense maybe but like questionably you know and um it works really really well and uh it also shows that this uh debut you know feature film for the director you know is 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 testing stuff out in a really like i think uh the director's originally a theater like a theater uh director so there was lots of kind of theatrical moments between two characters that were working really well on screen and um and i think that showed but for me Jennifer Lawrence actually kind of I I see your connection with Silver Lines playbook because there were parts where I was like oh is this the same you know but there are certain images. yeah I mean I I think her performance is quite good what you know that's where I differ with you but what I will say is I don't I don't think it's anything that we haven't necessarily seen from her before and I think she does it I think she does it perfectly well here but to, I, I I come away from this film where the performance I'm impressed by is Brian Tyree Henry. Um, you know, and and yeah, I, I, it's not something I noticed where I was doing, but yes, and now you mentioned there are a couple of moments, I suppose, with Jennifer Lawrence's performance where, you know, it's kind of the, okay, now we need to, now we need to actively emote. We're going to emote now, you know, um, like there's a little bit of that. Whereas I feel like it, it came through a little bit more um, organically in yeah. uh, Brian yeah, Tyree Henry's that. performance, it kind of it builds and like he has, you know, he, he does have these moments. And we said it's a it, it's a it's a quiet, contemplative film. Doesn't have a lot of this, but you feel with his, it kind of it it builds and it's a little bit more in kind of the the way he the way he looks when he delivers it or body language or kind of like mm -hmm. the line delivery is less about kind of like you know you know acting with your whole self, you know. Um, and I think it's it, I think it's really impressive. I think it's really impressive. Yeah, the film is better. It's at its best in the small moments. It's it's better when yeah. it's small and they're not going big. Because I was a bit, I was a bit uh, put off by the uh, the kind of second act into third act. You know, falling out, big emotions. They have to have a fight because that's how these indie films go. And um, that felt a bit formulaic and didn't really land for me, as well as some of the more subtle moments uh, earlier on. Yeah, no, I'd agree like, with that. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I, I feel like in, in some ways, I think the, the where the kind of the film strived when, when showing, especially not not just so much um mental trauma, but with showing um the recovery process from kind of more more physical, more physical trauma and more physical injury. I think my my feeling when watching it was that, that you know, I think the people behind the, the filmmaking, the writing of this, the the research was kind of done. I feel that I, I like the the transition between kind of, I, I don't think it exploited necessarily this kind of the, the, this this condition and it sort of showed that the 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 subtle transition from you know um the the the, the, the you know balancing on um balls and stuff trying to get um balanced like even just more more subtle things that went on just kind of in heart, hand coordination but I felt that I felt like the pace of how the recovery is portrayed is done really effectively. I think that it's not tried to rush into it's not tried to be something about someone constantly um falling over for dramatic effect it's to show kind of uh, where um these struggles kind of still still do linger but are the, yeah. but they're shown as more of a long-term long-term process which i i thought that i to me it seemed like that there was a lot of thought behind how this was going to be portrayed and uh, both elements of the brain, especially with brain injuries and things, I think I found it respectful, which which I which I really liked. Just to pick up on uh, 
Amanda's point about the pool imagery. I, I, I like that as well. I, I think that's a that was a subtle and effective way of getting to the kind of class implications uh, around of the film in this contrast between the opulent pools that Lindsay cleans for never seen rich people yeah. who own these pools uh, across the city and the tiny paddling pool that her and her mother share in the back garden. I think that's a sweet contrast uh, that really worked. Read. Um, and you can, there is a whole video essay on pools that's French, but by art, uh, pools in cinema. And I watched it over and over again because it. <laughs> it's just a great history of pools in cinema. Um, uh, but yeah, I highly recommend that if you're obsessed with pool imagery as I am. Um, on that note, I think uh, we recommend watching this film. So uh, check out Causeway. So we're back and I'm here with Patty Mraz, Bell Ingham and Ali Campbell, who have started the fundraiser for the former CMI staff welfare fund that's on GoFundMe right now. Uh, we will be sending a link um, so that you can uh, donate to this really important cause. And I wanted to chat with them today and talk about um, the campaign, uh, why you started it. Uh, you're part of the larger Save Film House campaign, but um, this was a particularly urgent um, action uh, and uh, and tell us a little bit about that process. I guess I, yeah, it was just quite shocking to me to learn that people um, who'd been working with us for under two years weren't, weren't going to get their redundancy pay. Um, and really, it was also sudden, I think, uh, finding out about some houses and EIF, is, I, if CMI is kind of bringing into administration, I, you know, it just um it was such a shock and it felt like there wasn't really much support available um and I really wanted to have have something there I'm, I'm glad Ali like reached out to me to like help organize it uh because I agree it's a very good idea I'm one of the former staff that's been there under two years and there's things like lots of like my notice on a contract was four weeks um but when claiming for government, I'm only getting a week. And there's a lot of people like me and people who have children who are in precarious financial situation and might not be able to find a job straight away. Uh, so I think this is very important to have um, and support people whilst they're looking for a job. Um, but yeah. Um, I think it's worth considering as well, Filmhouse was very much a place where people progressed. So there were a lot of people who felt very invested in, in um, the film industry and in cinema, when you got a job at Filmhouse, it, it kind of meant something. So I think for people to have to make such sudden decisions about what they were doing next is really difficult. So, you know, the idea, and I was approached about helping out was that, you know, this, this would give people a sort of a cushion so they could have a bit more time to consider what their next steps were. And obviously it's, it's a really difficult financial situation for everyone. Um, and, you know, having the concern of having no job might put people in positions where they won't have the chance to properly consider what their next career steps are. So I thought it was it was really important that we made sure that there was support for staff to make good decisions um, and have a bit more kind of autonomy in what's been quite um, an unautonomous process. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think you bring up a really good point, Belle, that, you know, this, this, um, the film house was one of the places as a former um, film exhibition curation student, the film house jobs at, you know, and potential jobs was one of the places where people, you know, very much were looking at the start of their career in terms of in film and film exhibition and a long, long-term career. So, um, you know, it's, it's a huge, huge loss um, uh, for everyone. Now, can you talk a little bit about what, I mean, how, how you kind of came up with the idea in terms of the structure? Like, I think one thing that Ali, you mentioned is to be really transparent about this, where is the money going specifically and where um, where would it go outside of if you raised more? And um, I'm also curious how, you know, how you feel about the uh, overall reception so far. So it's, it's roughly 30 to 40 people who are under the two years. So we want to kind of aim to cover those 40 staff members. So that's where we've kind of come up this number on a, on a banded system to kind of cover people's different working hours. Um, and we're hoping to publish the, the the bank statements kind of every two weeks to just kind of give people a bit of clarity about where the money is going. Um, we're hoping to pay people kind of yeah weekly weekly um, increments of the monthly total. It's 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 one month's pay at the the living wage, but the real living wage of ten pounds ninety. Yeah, that's that's kind of the structure of it. How are you feeling about the reception so far? Uh, your, I mean, your goals are, you know, a, is fifty thousand. We're already, I think, at this stage, around nine thousand. That's that's a that's, and there's also quite a lot of people who have donated. But of course, we're, we're here to get the word out for more people to donate. How, have you felt people have been, you know, very receptive? And uh, how, how have you felt overall of of around this? I think it was like um, we started off really well and people are very people are still very generous and I've shared lovely messages uh, when donating and it's been so surprising to see how so many people like genuinely care and want to help. Um, I've noticed that it's very much like peaks and troughs. <laughs> which is a thing we would say at Film House. Um, with the donations, depending when like an article would come out or something, we would quite, we try to share it with different people and sources. So whenever we would, a thing would be published promoting it, uh, we'd go for a peek. So we're trying to keep the momentum going so people don't just forget about it. Uh, because as I said, more and more people are reaching out, more former employees asking for financial help. Um, and it would be, good to be able to help them and uh yeah I know there's people that have uh, dependents and uh, have worked under two years and have quite a specialist's job um so it'd be a shame if they were not able to continue in their current career path uh because they need to just get any job they can at the moment um yeah I'd like to just support people to progress in their area of expertise and not lose it yeah absolutely and uh we're here to try to figure out a way to do that and uh, so we'll, we'll continue to help as much as possible um, to find a way to spread spread the word patty you've also been very instrumental in putting together the safe film house um website uh which shares a lot of stories as well um uh yeah do you want to talk a little bit about that because i thought that was a really lovely um 
uh, yeah, a, a way that you guys have organized the website between um, the, you know, t telling the stories and telling sort of more, more, more of the history or more of like the ethos of Filmhouse. Um, and I think that's, that was uh, fantastic. I was um, approached by a former person I worked with at the vigil, Filmhouse vigil, and she has shared with me being like, why don't you guys, because I was talking to her about all the different things Filmhouse did, about education, about things about programming, how people developed in their roles, etc. And she said, why don't you guys make a website to actually highlight all the things you did, all the festivals you've worked with, all the things that other cinemas did not do, all the things that you were like experts at, because this is not known to everyone. Because as she was saying, like as much as I went to Filmhouse because I like the independent cinema, I did not know about like all the things that you're telling me you've done now. So not many people will know about how important this is to the community because there's so many different things that Filmhouse was doing, whether it was for young people, for the elderly, for people from other countries having festivals in their uh, home uh, language. I took the idea on and I spoke to a couple of the former employees, uh, heads of education and some of the projection team. And then I spoke to others as well and asked them what they thought of the idea and like making a thing of every department uh, or and inform people what we actually did so it doesn't just disappear into ether. So there's like s solid concrete words telling you this is what we did and this is what we'd like to continue doing and this is why it's important um so i've um reached out to the person andrew who has made the initial website and asked for his help and i was like would you be okay if i did this because we as former employees feel it'd be good to highlight all the things that filmhouse did and i've got contacts who will be able to help me build the blocks uh of text etc uh, so I just started like a website from scratch. I've asked, uh, I've contacted David Boyd, I've contacted Rod White, I've also contacted other people for stories. Uh, because first, one of the last emails uh, that was received in the admin inbox was from Undine, which is also shared on Twitter. And it was really, really lovely. It was shared to us in the WhatsApp, former employees WhatsApp group. And we're like, oh, wow, this is nice. And when Ali and I were talking, we should add something like sweet because this would be a really good idea to like also like show the emotional side of it, how much impacted people's lives. So we also started the stories section of the website, not just, oh, this is what we did. And we're keep on get, we keep on getting submissions and it's, the stories are really sweet and moving. There's people who have like confessed that they've watched their first ever short film at film house and like there's been quite a few like really nice stories heartwarming and i think they're important because it's it lets people express themselves and their love for film house um or because it meant a lot to people that aren't just employees it also meant a lot to the community um yeah so we're just trying to like make people aware of what a great thing it was <laughs> yeah. i think that's yeah, came from mainly. Yeah. 
I think, yeah, by having that awareness and, and like asking people for their stories and asking them to reflect as well. I think that's that's brought together the community really nicely. People have been able to connect and think about it. Um, and, and I think that's made um, members of the public feel part of our community as well. I think a lot of us who worked at Filmhouse also had similar stories before we worked at Filmhouse. Um, you know, it, it's a real community and it's been really nice to have the story section where people have been able to share things um, to kind of build a community of of cinema lovers, of film house attenders, of people who who have been touched by film house in some kind of way. Um, so having the stories thing is kind of built into the, the wider um, website that Patty's worked on in terms of just stories and you know creating an oral history for ourselves. I just add a wee thank you to the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. They've been really supportive, and they they've um, let us kind of just do a wee introduction before their their screenings um, and it just people have been so generous there um, and it was very kind of them to let us uh, fundraise there so it's just a thank you to them. <laughs> yeah no I mean it's, um, as as you we've all articulately and really importantly expressed this was a community and uh, the work that um, the former CMI staff was doing was was very very specialized and a very important um, part of our community, and it was and and it really showed how passionate everyone is around um, around film, but also the specific specific type of uh, cultural sort of offer that wouldn't and you know education and everything that wasn't. So I I think everyone um, really appreciates the work that you have done right here to 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 create this GoFundMe um, for the former staff. And we should really help as much as possible, which is why we're here. We, again, we'll send the link. Is there? Um, you could definitely just go to the save right. Go to savethefilmhouse.com um, to get to the link. Is probably the easiest way. Correct. Yep. Yeah. So please go there and support um, this GoFundMe and uh, Patty Bell and Ali. Thank you so much for your time. We wish the fundraiser the best success. Thank you. <laughs> I'm back uh, and I'm here actually with Jim Hickey, who was the director of the film house from 79 to 93. Jim, thank you so much for letting us do this interview with you and talking a little bit about the history of the film house. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So I, I read a little bit about your history and actually it got me into, um, yeah, learning a little bit more about the, the film festival. Now, can you kind of give us an overview? The festival is 75 years old. It's said to be the continuously running oldest uh, film festival in the world, but the film house is 40 years old or 40 plus now. I, I went to hear you speak um, at the film house a few years ago on the 40th anniversary. How, how did that all come about, the film festival and the film house, and how are they connected? Well, the film house, before it was, took over this church in Lothian Road in, in 78, 79. Um, it had a base run by the Edinburgh Film Guild, who, which is the oldest continuously running um, uh, film society. Uh, they owned the, the building in, in the West End of Edinburgh in, in Randolph Crescent, which the film festival used. Um, and they founded the film festival in 1947. 
Um, so they had a small cinema in one of their earlier buildings and they moved to Randolph Crescent and had a basement cinema there and offices. And so they were able to operate as this film society, but they started the film festival in 47. And initially it was a documentary film festival. So it, it really just showed documentaries, but it had lots of gradually got lots of invited films from different countries. I mean, it's, different from the days that Linda Miles and myself experienced where we would travel to lots of festivals and, and look at lots of films and select stuff. What was happening then was quite often an official entry from a country mm. would be submitted to the festival and the festival would show it. That's where the film festival began in through that film society. And um, eventually Linda and I got to work, we met at university, we worked together on the film society there, we made it into, along with her partner at the time, David Will, um, we made it into a, a society with like 2,000 members and wow. we would show one film each week at the local Odeon Cinema, which had 1,500 seats, so we could get most of the members to one screening and it broadened out into two nights a week and usually double bills uh, so Dave and Linda were really fanatical about film they used to go to the Cinematheque in Paris to look at films uh, they knew a lot more than I did but you know we were all really passionate about learning more about cinema it was the, the days of people talking about auteurs emphasizing the role of the director more than anything else and so Edinburgh began to do a series under Murray Grigger, who was the director in 1967, he started to do retrospectives. So with the help of Dave and Linda, he would be doing, uh, there would be retrospectives of, of Sam Fuller, of Roger Corman, uh, Douglas Sirk, Raoul Walsh. And these were an attempt to show people you know, the complete works or as near complete as they could get of one particular filmmaker. I mean, it got to the point with the Raoul Walsh retrospective where we actually showed 48 of his films during oh, the festival. Yeah. So it was really very rigorous and it was done alongside lots of people working in the British Film Institute in London who were doing a lot of the writing and helping with the programming. The National Film Archive would chase down prints from other archives or collectors. Um, and allowed us to Edinburgh to be this focal point each year. And a lot of those people from London would come up to the festival as well. People interested in cinema, people who wrote about cinema uh, or taught it even. So they would come to Edinburgh as a fixture in their year. You know, it just became somewhere where they all got together. So Linda took over from Murray and throughout the 70s, I worked as her deputy director so it was really interesting to read too that uh, as you said this connection between the film guild uh and also your connection with the film society how much these film societies like really built this and you know what became the film house and the edinburgh international film festival and they're so tied together um which is really which is really fascinating and also that john grierson started the film festival or he was one of the people that's right, yes. And Forsyth Hardy was his biographer. I mean, the, the main book on Grierson is by Forsyth Hardy. Um, and in 
one of the years in the 70s, we had a, a documentary 50 event where a lot of these people, um, not Grierson then, he died, but there were people like Basil Wright, um, all came to the festival. All these old documentary British filmmakers were all there, but there was also um, Don Pennybaker from America. He he was there too because, of course, you know his more recent uh, documentaries at that time were things everybody wanted to get hold of. He was he was one of the the more one of the pioneers of our kind of generation. Uh, is distinct from the, the Grierson generation. Yes, and so you started to um, mention that there was Cinema 2, and that's interesting. Is that the current Cinema 2? Um, that's it, right, yes. That was the first cinema and the current on 88th Lothian Road, and then you were to develop and get money to, to make the Filmhouse 1. Yep, and that finally opened in um 82 so it took three years of work and fundraising to complete cinema one uh and the foyer obviously in the box office area uh and to open the front doors because when we only had cinema two people had to go through the back lane mm. uh, to the rear e entrance of the of the building um, but once we got to 82 people were able to go in the main door and the, the area that was to become the cafe bar was completely um, walled off. You couldn't go through there so that you'd go through a narrow tunnel through the back to Cinema 2 uh, and you go up the stairs to Cinema 1. So yeah. that functioned for the, the following three years till the, the cafe bar opened and then the whole building was open by that time. And how did the cafe bar kind of bring a different energy to the, I mean, did it, did it bring more people in or, um, you know, was it helpful in terms of keeping the film house alive in terms of finances or um, I, I'm just always very curious on how, you know, all these things work together. Yeah, well, it's, it became the thing that all of the film theaters similar to, to film house um, everybody began to realize that you needed more than just, you know, a box office and a, a cinema. You actually needed to have a place where people could meet and people could sit and enjoy being together and spending time in the building and spending money, obviously. So it became crucial for most cinemas of this kind of generation. And so the bar and cafe were essential, actually, for income to boost what takings we were getting at the box office because you really did need that extra money. Um, and it, it made the place something that people wanted to come to more often. You know, it was somewhere where they'd arranged to meet. And it was also lucky that in Lothian Road, we were in an area where there was the Usher Hall, where there were lots of concerts and events going on. There was the Traverse Theatre and the Lyceum Theatre so there was a whole cultural quarter in that small area of Edinburgh, which became very important, you know, that audiences that would go to the Usher Hall or to the Traverse Theatre would come to Filmhouse to have a meal beforehand or go to Filmhouse for a drink after they'd been to the theatre. Yeah. So you had enough people interested in other things coming to Filmhouse and probably learning that it was a safe place to be. I mean, women could come, um, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but um, 
women were happy to come to the bar and cafe there alone, whereas normally on Lothian Road you might not be because there's a lot of pubs on Lothian Road. The weekends and Friday nights were always quite noisy. You know, often we there was a period where we put a guard on the front door on Friday for the late night film that we would show to stop people just wandering in who were drunk and so on. You know, all those problems that you have when you've got a public um, building, <laughs> you've got yeah. to deal with it and, and make sure people feel secure. And we learned quite quickly that women felt very secure coming there. They would meet in the mornings for coffees and things, you know, before screenings um, starting at two o'clock. You know, the, the place was quite busy at lunchtime. So we began to realize that, you know, that the loyal audience that a cinema like this needs was, was beginning to develop. And uh, we were, you know, once we had the front doors open and it was visibly a cinema and you could walk in, there was no membership, there's no club involved. Um, so you didn't have to sign up to anything. You could just walk in and treat it like a normal cinema. You know, it seems that it's disappeared at the moment and, you know, all efforts are being made to, to try and replace it or get it back uh, open again. Yeah, no, I think I think you you bring up a really good point and something where I, you know, I, I've, I've always come to the film house for meetings and it's a comfortable space. And I think people often... Um, don't realize how important a space feel to feel safe and comfortable, quiet, or to be able to like be in for hours. And you know whether and and, and it really was that public space, regardless of the cinema. You know um, that was really important for Edinburgh. And um, sure, people think think about glossy kind of places that you know you can have fancy cocktails, but also you know to draw certain uh, you know people. But you also need a place where you feel very comfortable to spend, you know, that that almost feels like a home away from home. And Edinburgh's film house always did. It's really interesting that it started, yeah, obviously the film house started uh and it's in it in the location where it has been last, um uh in 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 the eight, in the early 80s, uh, as you say. Because it's that's interesting because a lot of film houses or a lot of cinemas went went away way before that you know there's so many cinemas in in the uk and, and edinburgh for years and years and years um when do you think film house itself the this one on 88 lothian road maybe had its heyday or was it always very busy over the years well it's, it's a good point you make because when i took on the job in 79 it was probably the worst time to be thinking about creating another cinema because as in, in the uk attendances were plummeting uh, cinemas were being closed, old style cinemas with 1500 seats um, were not getting audiences um, that were big enough to keep them running. And they, it definitely felt like the, 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 um, felt like the, the cinema as we knew it was beginning to just disappear. And here we were deciding to build and raise money for a new building to show more films. But we knew that it would be programmed. We knew that the, the, the film house would be showing films that nobody else was showing, and it would seek out things that were ones that we believe were great films. Equally, it would put on new films. It would work with distributors and the British Film Institute um, to program films that were 
of the moment and to do little mini seasons and retrospectives and things like that. Um, so we had a kind of, I suppose, I mean, it's perhaps not the right word to use, but a sort of educational um, element to it. So during the, the early 80s, um, it, it was the worst time for, for cinemas. And it was the multiplexes opening in roughly mid 80s, 84, 5, that changed everything. Because then suddenly there was cinemas with eight or 10 or 12 screens showing lots of different films. Sometimes the same film in several screens when they're really busy. And that persists even to today, of course. But I remember people saying to me when we'd completed and opened Film House, there was a guy came up to me and he said, um, oh, this sort of building, you know, it will be gone in 10 years. You know, they'll all be gone by then. Nobody will want this kind of thing. And we couldn't believe anyone would think that, you know, because we yeah. assumed that always there would be an audience for cinema. Um, we couldn't conceive of a day when we would have to close because the catalogue of film history that we were drawing from was vast. And, you know, even if we never showed a new film, we would have so many great films that we could be showing and programming in interesting and different ways that that would keep the cinema alive and keep people coming. So there's a lot of flexibility about how we programmed and, and worked with distributors and worked with archives and so on. But yes, it was a tough time, but we gradually got through it, you know? Yeah, and I mean, it sounds like it was a tough time and also it's not an easy time now and people could easily say, oh, there will be no cinemas, you know, in 10 years, but there are so many, um, if you would call cinephile or cinema loving audiences like that want this kind of retrospective or sort of cultural cinema offer and uh, to not have that in Edinburgh is um, is devastating. I mean, you say that your colleagues at the Film Society, Linda, were cinephiles and they went to the Cinematheque, which I'm super fascinated to, to know about anyway. What drew you to doing this for so long and what was your favorite part of working as the director of um the film house was it a festival was it um i kind of liked all of it i mean it seems a bit obvious but <laughs> I, I liked all the elements of it because going to festivals we didn't have a lot of money but we would go uh and i followed linda in this that the, the main ones we would go to each year were Rotterdam and Berlin at the beginning of the year. They'd be around about February every year and Cannes in May, because by the time we got to Cannes, we'd be looking at films that would be opening in the UK in the autumn. British distributors would use the festival as a kind of launch pad because they knew that it would get reviews at the festival, that a film being shown in a festival atmosphere and possibly filling you know, one of the big cinemas like the, the Playhouse in Edinburgh, which had 3,000 seats at one time, um, we would be filling that with one or two performances every festival. But equally, all the films were taken, um, all of the films were given as much prominence as we could give them, especially helping to get the directors there so the directors would spend time with audiences. Um, the things that are just taken for granted almost today, that that's, that's what you do. But that was good. But I also enjoyed the, the way in which 
back in Edinburgh, we watched this thing grow. You know, yeah. we were watching it year by year, getting better and better. And I think by the late 80s, we were getting something like 3,000 um, people a week coming to wow. the, the two cinemas that were open then. And so it was really an exciting time. We felt we, we'd made it. You know, once we got past 86, 87, we really felt Filmhouse had, had come into its own and we couldn't conceive of it ever disappearing. Uh, you know, I, I really loved your, your discussion about, you know, this world international film community that you met at Berlin Alley is one of my favorite film festivals I've had the opportunity to go to. Mm -hmm. um, but Edinburgh became something that, um, as you were saying in, in a previous uh, question, really became super well known for the, like as the preeminent UK film festival. And um, it also has a different feel to it. I mean, maybe it's slightly, for me, it feels slightly more intimate because it's very much, connected to the film house. Um, how how do you think you as part of, you know, and and Linda and the other people that you worked with during that time sort of cr crafted a, a festival that was unique, but it was also sort of on the international kind of landscape as one of the top film festivals in the world? Well, I think it was the, um, it was the way that Edinburgh looked after filmmakers. I think that was a really crucial thing that we would make sure that we, as best we could, we would get the filmmakers to come to the festival. And I remember us mm -hmm. saying very early on when we were d doing the job back at the, in, in Murray's day that uh, each filmmaker who comes to the festival has to believe that theirs is the most important film in the festival. You know, you have to treat them all as equally as you can. Now, that's difficult if you've got Martin Scorsese coming because, you know, you've got a retrospective of his films um, and therefore the distributor expects, you know, lunches or dinners and hotels being paid and so on. And a lot of it was a balancing act between trying to cover as many of the filmmakers as we could, but also being glad of any distributors that would pay for their filmmaker to come because they were on a a circuit where they're heading off to the German launch and the French launch of their film or whatever it is, you know, so Edinburgh could be built into their itinerary. But the thing about all of that meant that those people were going away and telling other filmmakers, you know, Edinburgh's the place to go. This is somewhere you should get your film next year because you get looked after, you meet amazing people, um, the quality of projection and the comfort of the cinemas and all these things count. And, you know, Edinburgh was as, as good a place as in its, its size, uh, for its size. It was as good a place as you could go to in those days. Yeah. No, I mean, that that's interesting. It's a, a word of mouth as well. And, and the experience that you create, um, you know, it's like there's 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 something something really tangible about that. And that's that's amazing um how over the years uh you know you've been well you were part of it till 90 93 you that's said right, yes did you why why did you decide to um to move on i think you said you were went on to produce films which you said originally you had wanted to do anyway uh why did you decide to move on and pass the baton on to somebody else um just to go back a couple of few years just before that um, it came to the point where the film festival was looking at, you know, financially always in trouble. It 
never quite had enough money. It was always in in a position where the grants were never quite enough, and you can't do everything on box office alone. You know, the, a festival needs subsidy, um, and it it wasn't perhaps getting as much as it it should have had for for many years. But I'd done eight festivals as a director by that time, 1988, and I felt I'd done it long enough. Um, and because I'd worked in the 70s as well. So, you know, I thought it was time somebody else came in that, you know, you need young blood, you need some a different approach to the festival within the parameters that have been established, you know. But, you know, there may be someone who, you know, would spend a lot of time showing non-English language films or, you know, seeking out filmmakers that we never had the money to to go and find or to travel to see those films. Maybe somebody new would have the contacts, would be able to go places that we never went. Um, and I just thought, you know, my attention has got to be with Film House at the moment because the cameo was representing a threat to eat away at our audience, possibly. And I felt that also I could work with a, a new director on sort of fusing the work of the film festival and film house in more interesting ways, you know, that we could do events that linked into the festival, knowing what it was likely to do the following year, or even, you know, capitalizing on something that happened at the film festival. So it was, a, I mean, we used to sort of say, well, film house ought to be a year round festival. And in many ways it, it did become that, I think, you know, and has been for, for quite a few years but what happened then was the two organizations were were divided and a new director was appointed for um, the film festival and I carried on programming film house but um, I also felt I mean I was by then in my 40s and I thought if I don't do it now if I don't leave now Yes, I could happily stay here, but, you know, people would be bored with me. I probably would not remain as fresh as I could have been. And maybe it wouldn't have been a good idea to stick around much longer. And I thought, well, if I go now, this would be the best time to do it. Um, and I've had no regrets. And I did go on and make some films. And uh, it uh, it was tough and not having a salary you know, working in that world where you, you're spending months with no income and then occasionally a film got made. Um, but it uh, it was tough. But, you know, everybody finds it tough. You know, getting into the into production is, is not easy and it's, it's no easier now than it, it was then. Although there are different ways of making films now that um, weren't available in the, the early 90s. But um, yeah, I have no regrets about it. Um, Jim, I thank you so much for taking the time. I think it's so important to hear uh, this. I mean, it, it's something that I really value you taking this time to go through the history. And I think also, just to finish, there was one thing that, that did happen, I think, that it, Murray Grigger leading to Linda Miles, leading to me running the festival, you had this wonderful kind of overlap of people who worked together for a short period in the changeover period. 
Um, and it's almost like the film festival grew organically from this, that, you know, we, we all were moving in the same direction, as it were. And it was at a time when that was needed. There was a kind of stability about how film festival grew during um, the late 60s onwards. Um, and I think that got a bit lost suddenly. It needed that sort of transition of people who understood each other and understood what Edinburgh meant and tried to keep that going, you know, but that I'm talking a long time ago. I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm talking about years where most of the people who are caring about film house and worried about it at the moment are younger people uh, who weren't even born when I was doing what I was doing. So I can't tell them, you know, they, it will come, it will grow out of this movement, hopefully that it'll, it'll all get redefined and things will change, hopefully. Well, I think it does matter to a lot of people who are younger and it's in part, I think that's a really good point you mean about the kind of transference of skills and it's a good time for us to reflect on how maybe we can improve going forward and, you know, uh, and, 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 and here, you know, because it's decades long of, of learning here. Um, and so I, I would talk to you for more, many, many more hours and, and I really appreciate it. So thank you for taking the time to talk. Um, so I really thank you again. Um, hey, thank you. I enjoyed it. This wraps our November edition. Big thanks to Patty, Ali, and Belle, and Jim for joining us um, around uh, the, the the story, what's happening with the film house and CMI. Again, please go to savethefilmhouse.com to support uh, this former CMI welfare fund if you can in any way um, share. And uh, thank you to um, Simon, Steph, and Jim for joining uh, again. Uh, so I've, I've, I, it's November and mid-November and we're thinking holiday time. I think there's already lots of Christmas movies happening on Netflix. So I'd love to challenge this team, um, the greater Cinetopia team, who's also listening uh, to uh, a, a good and bad. You can choose what you want. Um, I am starting with the um, Lindsay Lohan uh, film. I think it's like Falling for Christmas or something like that. So I challenge you to watch that because it's easy uh, to watch. And I mean, we all know the film. It's going to be a poster with two people on it. It's going to be green and red font of some sort uh, with a Christmas tree in the background. It's out, it's out. Find that one with Lindsay Lohan. That's probably the one. <laughs> it's it's out now, so you can get your head start if you'd like on the Christmas films. Uh, do you? Good Lord, it's even Thanksgiving yet. <laughs> Do you all have a film to challenge uh, the rest of the team to watch? Uh, best or worst, your pick. Uh, yeah, so I, I've been unwittingly preparing for this feature for four years or so because <laughs> me and my partner we watch uh, we watch bad Christmas films throughout December. Like I, I don't watch any serious films. It's all about. The bad, bad Christmas films. Just go to Netflix and type in Christmas and watch the first thing that comes up. Who cares? Go for it. Um, so so we do that. So I've got quite a few. 
so I'd say my anti-recommendation is a film we tried to watch last year and couldn't get through, despite our high tolerance for Bad Christmas, which is Father Christmas is Back, which is a film with Kelsey Grammer and John Cleese, and it's kind of a bawdy 70s comedy, but it was made last year. It, it doesn't work at all. Uh, that's an anti-recommendation. For my recommendation, I would say uh, we watched a film called Dear Christmas, which, because we're on the radio, because we're on a podcast, is appropriate. It's about a podcaster at Christmas. All She's, right. like, struggling to balance her successful podcast with her family. You know how these things, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's worth watching just for the scene where she records the podcast and then goes into the other room and proclaims, well, we've gone viral. As if that's how <laughs> podcasting works. Uh, so that's Dear Christmas. I don't know where it's available to stream, but yeah. Okay, Dear Christmas sounds good because I do believe Isabel last year uh, highly didn't recommend your anti-recommendation. Yeah, so. don't don't watch that one. <laughs> so we can we can manage Dear Christmas. Steph, do you have a recommendation? I have an anti one. I, I'm going to be honest. I've I've never been a massive um, Christmas film watcher. My go-to one every year is Gremlins. That's that's my favorite one. Um, yeah. My my anti one actually to be honest with you I, I would be lying if I said that I didn't actually quite like it it's absolutely awful but I loved it um it's it's almost like a, I wouldn't really call it a horror I think that's what it's listed as I wouldn't I wouldn't worry too much about that people don't watch them um it's a old slasher film from the 80s called Christmas Evil I saw it in an all-night screening before and it's just the most ridiculous film I've ever seen about someone who essentially has a nervous breakdown over Christmas. It's done very, very offensively, probably. I, retrospectively, it's not done well. Um, and it's about a man who makes toys and suddenly just um, cracks up. And, um, well, you know, I don't want to give too much away, really. There's, there's, but definitely go and watch. I don't know where it would be streaming, if it's streaming anywhere. Um my best bet on this one would be to check Amazon Prime. They've always got some. Um, if you can't find that one, they've always got some hidden gems for the, the worst of the worst, especially during Christmas. Christmas Evil, that's what it's called? What? Yeah, Christmas Evil. Well, I think that, yeah, I think, I, I'm sure it goes by another name as well. Um, I think it's something like You Better Watch Out is also its alternative name, if that does not come <laughs> up. Um, but uh, oh, it's it's a blast, to be honest. Okay, and uh, since this is your favorite um, challenge of the year, Jim, uh, would you have a ch a, a film I, I, challenge? I, I'm not sure we do, but I do have a question. Did did everybody on this call make it through a castle for Christmas? Then no, I've not seen it yet, but I'm definitely going to watch it tonight. All right, well, I'm going to make you, you know, was, well, fine. I'm making you watch a castle okay. for Christmas castle then, because if Christmas, I yeah, castle for Christmas, Christmas Evil, Dear Christmas, and Falling for Christmas are our four films uh to, to challenge maybe we can watch yeah if you want if you get through all of them good luck you know um, yeah you will i made it about half an hour into castle for christmas easter eggs for to watch out for for anybody who's familiar with scotland uh keep an eye out for the route that her taxi takes when she gets to scotland yeah right? love that all right does it keep an eye out for that right and if you have any local odds kind of like the, the location you go to it is batshit it is absolutely batshit but anyway i will i will and leave those delights bag. for when you're watching the film and the oat cakes for rain Oat cakes in the rain, which uh, you yeah. commented on. Um, One phrase. 
I'm going to give a shout out as well. We mentioned Gremlins. I just want to give a quick shout out to Queen's Park Arena in Glasgow, who do outdoor screenings. Uh, they're showing cult and classic Christmas films all through December in uh, Glasgow City Centre. So I've got tickets for Gremlins, but I might pick up tickets for, I don't know, Home Alone as well, Muppet Christmas Carol. Amazing. I was trying to suggest an outdoor Christmas thing here on, and everyone said burr, but I, I'm <laughs> very, very excited to know that Glasgow is doing outdoor Christmas films. We're, we're made of harder stuff in Glasgow. <laughs> Clearly. Cool. Cold schmold. Get the jacket on. A bit of mold wine. You'll I was fine. like, how about some Christmas yeah, films in, in, it's, uh, it's... in Princess Street Gardens and everyone goes burr, but you know. No, it's worth it for gremlins. Yeah, Simon, I, I think that Simon, I think that you should suggest that they screen um the dear um was it dear Christmas? Dear Christmas. I, I'll email them. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go and do an introduction. I don't care. All right. Well, thank you very much for those very fine recommendations. We will report back. Our challenge has been set. And uh, thank you for joining us on this uh, edition of the Cinetopia Radio Show and Podcast. We will see you next month.